The state of Missouri stands ready to execute an innocent man. After DNA evidence ruled him out as the perpetrator, the governor dismantled a team of judges reviewing his case and asked for a fast track to execution day. Will the newly discovered DNA evidence be considered by a court? Or will Missouri execute a wrongfully convicted man? This week's episode is The Wrongful Conviction of Marcellus Williams. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, we heard about this case from the Innocence Project's social media. They were posting about how dire the situation is and how jaw-dropping. And I think as everybody listens, you all will agree. And that's my question the whole time is how. How did this happen? Yeah, the Innocence Project, bless them, and all of the incredible work they do. Whenever we cover cases like this, it just it's a staunch reminder of this case is being covered and talked about and actively worked upon to stay the execution, but how many aren't? Yeah, and how many from today back, since as long as we've done that, were never ever guilty of what they were executed for? Yes, yeah, that already have been executed, that never were guilty of the crimes for which they were executed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, and we'll see, and we'll bring out some, bring some other cases into this where when. You look at the evidence from one perspective, it it kind of gives you, it's like, oh man, I could see it going either way, but on a complete, holistic, to- totally clear picture of the evidence, especially with DNA in cases like this, you do have to revisit these older cases, even if it's like, well, the jury made this decision. It's like, well, we have new information and new mm-hmm. computers and new, I mean, it's just, we have new technological processes. New information has come to light, man. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, so many crimes yeah. when they're com- committed technology or science just isn't the same as it is 20 years later. And if you could exonerate someone because Mm -hmm. science has made advancements, then why wouldn't we want to make advancements in our justice system? I think so. And I'll I'll save it for, so what do we think? But I think there's a ideally an ideal world we live in where we don't even need the innocence project anymore. Unfortunately that we live in about the opposite of it right now. And so we Mm -hmm. desperately need them and desperately need what they do, especially for cases like this. And and that's why I like to subscribe to them is because they have successful cases where someone is exonerated. They are saved from being executed when there is clear evidence that they didn't do it. So we'll be watching this one and, and I hope everybody that's listening does too. And, writes in to the the Missouri governor and says, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Alicia Ann Gale was born in Rockford, Illinois, on February 6, 1956, to parents Veronica and George Gale, the second born of eight children. Felicia, called Leisha by friends and family, was always known for her sincere kindness and inclusion of others. A Rockford native, Leisha attended Bloom Grade School before heading to Guilford High School, where she was involved in the Student Council, National Honor Society, and the high school newspaper, The Voyager. Childhood friend Steve Kirsch later wrote a piece for the Chicago Tribune dedicated to Leisha's passing, where he described her as, 
the kind of person who gave definition to your hometown, the kind of person your neighborhood needed to be a truly cohesive collection of neighbors, the kind of person you believe you cannot do without, even if you hadn't spoken in several years. Steve remarked on Leisha's uncanny ability to keep in touch with old friends. Indeed, on the day of her murder, Leisha had 30 handmade cards ready to be mailed for birthdays of friends and family around the country. When you always hear when someone is killed that, oh, they were the best, they were the kindest, but you saw, and I'm sure she was, but you also just saw through all of her acts that she was the best and the kindest. You know, it was like not just lip service, like actually taking the time to be connected with friends, taking the time to make a difference in people's lives. And Steve mentioned that, who is also a journalist, and when he wrote his piece, he said, so often we say, you know, oh, we lost one of the good ones, but he said Leisha was one of the great ones, like one of the ones that you couldn't live without. And seven over 700 people crowded into the auditorium where her memorial service was held because from, you know, a young age, he went to grade school with her and then I believe also high school. From that young of an age, she had these morals and ethics and just this natural kindness to her to where she wanted everyone to be friends. She was kind of the the link between friend groups. She was so inclusive and just had such a kind and empathetic nature that everyone that meet her, you know, felt like even if you hadn't talked in years, like you could pick up the phone, call her and you'd be right back where you left off. Yeah, it sounds like it, and especially with, like, she's writing birthday cards to people that she doesn't even live in the same state as, like, mm-hmm. that kind of maintaining that type of connection. S- Steve said she did that 300 times a year. Wow. She would hand make cards and send them to everyone around the country. And when someone enjoys doing those things, I have such admiration because, for myself included, that would be a task I did not want to embark upon, but for her, it was a genuine, like this is her love language. She wants everyone to feel remembered and special. And it, it was a joy for her to do it. It wasn't a pain. Yeah. It's like something I want to do. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's very sweet. Upon graduating from Guilford high school in 1974, Leisha was accepted to the university of Illinois, where she earned a BA in journalism. A few years later in 1980, she married her high school sweetheart, Daniel Pikus, who would go on to become a doctor. The happy couple was married for 18 years before Leisha's tragic death. Standing five foot one, Leisha may have been small in stature, but never in heart. She spent her life tutoring children, advocating for the disadvantaged, and was a staunch feminist and environmentalist. Indeed, while working for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch from 1981 to 1992, Leisha established an internal recycling program that is still used today. Assistant Managing Editor Ellen Gardner, who hired Leisha in 1981, spoke of her warmth and tenacity in the wake of her passing. She might have been diminutive in size, but she was never afraid to stand up for what she believed in. And it's talking about those actions again when she stopped working for the newspaper, went on to dedicate her life to philanthropy, working with disadvantaged Mm -hmm. kids, working, you know, tutoring the students, you know, all those things you see that someone says they're into. But creating an entire internal recycling program at work that has lasted from the 80s, 90s, early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. That's very commendable. They never had children of their own, but she loved children and she loved tutoring them and mentoring them. She would take 
them to the opera. She would take them to their homes to, to bake cookies. She was friends with all their families. She was just all in all, I, I have not read one negative thing about her only, and not just, not just nice things, but praise people yes. just spoke so highly of all of the characteristics about her. Yeah. A credit to the community and to having a person like that in the world makes the world a better place. That's exactly sure. how we make the world a better place is go around and do, do the work. Mm -hmm. On August 11th, 1998, Dr. Daniel Pikus left work for the day and arrived at he and Leisha's home in the private subdivision of Ames place, a gated community located in university city, an inner ring suburb of St. Louis. There, he discovered his wife of 18 years had been stabbed to death in their home. After discovering Leisha's body around 7.50 p.m., Daniel immediately called 911. Lee Durham, a neighbor of Leisha and Daniel's, told the Post-Dispatch, This is one of the best neighborhoods in the area. It really kind of floored us. Fearing for their own safety, nearby residents looked to the police for answers. However, authorities didn't reveal much, initially telling the Post-Dispatch, We'd rather protect our investigation and catch the person involved than provide details to reassure the community. Captain Jeffrey Keller did offer some insight into the case, telling the newspaper. We feel like we've got some promising leads. But this was jaw-dropping at the time because it was such an affluent area and did not have murders like this happening. Um, all of the reports of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch at the time, unsurprisingly because she was beloved by them, had a lot of coverage, not just on her murder, but on general crime in the area after that, in the months after it. And was saying like of all of the murder victims, you know, 30 some odd murder victims, only a handful were female. And the ones that were, were actually, you know, were otherwise killed in a clearly, uh, a clear dispute. You know, it was a, a some sort of a robbery or something gone wrong and able to catch it. This was just such a strange anomalous thing. In a gated, quiet community, the gates prevented cars from coming in and out that weren't supposed to be there, but pedestrians were still able to walk in and out. But in a neighborhood like that, where everyone there thinks this would never happen here, this is a very safe, affluent community. And, you know, all of the neighbors look out for each other. But we have seen time and time again that these types of things are an equalizer for everyone, no matter your socioeconomic status. Bad things happen to all sorts of people, including really, really good people. Yeah, exactly. And it's, like you said, the great equalizer. At the scene, police found bloody shoe prints not belonging to Leisha Gale or her husband or any first responders. Head and pubic hairs were taken from Gale's shirt and from a recently cleaned rug on which her body was found. There was also blood and skin recovered from Gail's fingernails. Bloody fingerprints were found at the scene, likely left behind by the perpetrator. And she had been upstairs showering after a run and got out of the shower. It was pretty standard. She had a purple shirt she would put on after she got out of the shower to kind of, I guess, get ready for stuff. And... At some point, she came down the stairs from the area where she was showering. The blood trail began on about the third step up. And when she was found on this nearby rug, she was not wearing any pants and was only wearing the same shirt. So it seemed as if she came immediately from the shower downstairs and confronted someone in the house down mm -hmm. at the bottom of the steps. 
A later autopsy revealed Leisha had been injured by the knife 43 times and suffered 16 stab wounds, seven of which were fatal. The murder weapon was found twisted into her neck, a fact which investigators and forensic experts called noteworthy. It was especially suspicious as less than a month earlier on July 18th, just three miles away, a woman named Deborah McLean had been killed in a similar way. An intruder broke in, stabbed McLean with a knife from her own kitchen, and left the weapon in her neck. St. Louis County Medical Examiner Dr. Mary Case believed the cases were related. To go back to your earlier point of, you know, the crime can strike anywhere, even though Deborah McLean just lived three miles away, it was a significantly lower income area. She lived in an apartment rather than a house. And financially, you know, where Leisha Gale had a professional career, was the wife of a doctor. Deborah McLean was an employee at Walgreens. But I imagine if someone is looking to victimize someone, they don't do a full background check. It is more superficial similarities and location-based convenience Opportunity. Area. Mm-hmm. At a meeting with the chief detectives investigating Leisha's homicide, Dr. Case articulated the similarities in the victims, their injuries, and the crime scene, which included broken glass at both locations. Both victims were in their early 40s. McLean was 40 and Gail was 42, both of similar build with long brown hair. Both had been stabbed nearly the same number of times and in the same areas, on the head and right side of the neck, as well as the front and back upper trunk area. Police called the similar head wounds in both cases. Unusual. Very little was disturbed at either scene. Each victim was stabbed with a knife from her own kitchen drawer, and the victim's purses were missing in both cases. Both victims also had defensive wounds. The most compelling similarity was that the knives were left twisted in the victim's necks. Dr. Case called this similarity extremely rare. According to court records, one investigator thought the killings were the work of a serial killer. As one would, given that it was only three weeks apart, three miles apart, with very similar victimology and identical causes of death. The the neck in, left in the knife would be a, I mean, that's hard to forget and would be a, the first thing if that you would think, oh, these are connected. Because and it, it was such an uh, uncommon way thing to come upon. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You're the forensic examiner getting a second case uh, when Leisha Gale comes in. I'm sure you're like, oh my gosh, this I just saw this. And it wasn't just that the perpetrator had plunged the knife in and left it. It was, it made contact with bone. So it was, it was a specific and seemingly intentional, difficult maneuver that was made in both cases. Local pressure was mounting for any leads in either case. Leisha Gale's role as a former reporter with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the murder's location in an upscale gated community, and the similar murder of Deborah McLean increased media attention. However, the dispatch reported, Police are stumped in both cases. Even with the attention and pressure, no arrests were made. And I noted in the newspaper coverage at the time, the first time I, there was a mention of Deborah McLean's um, killing just sort of in passing that there was this kind of smaller blurb on it. But then once Leisha Gale was killed, they there was this front page kind of spread, at least the front page of this section with both of their photos. There's a map between their houses showing how close their houses are, showing the dates. It really was 
pretty quickly, you know, the police are stumped. If you have any information, here's all the ways the victims are similar. And we'll see pretty quickly that narrative is dropped for some reason. Mm-hmm. And this being 98, ring doorbells weren't really a thing then. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't have that footage. Maybe people had security cameras, but again, it wasn't as common as it is now. Where now, you know, I mean, ring cameras are the first thing authorities ask for to, mm-hmm. to help with this kind of stuff. But again, like the technology was just different. So yep. the case was treated different, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be reexamined once once technology catches up. Yeah, once we have that evidence. And you're right, just comparing it to what we know about like the Idaho case with he, he wasn't just caught on like nearby cameras, but it's like all of these subsequent cameras almost where you can track somebody's whole location, even if there were cameras in 98, it's going to be VHS tapes, mm-hmm. you know, blurry. Yeah. On August 31st, 1998, 29-year-old Marcellus Williams was arrested for robbing a fast food restaurant. He was incarcerated at the St. Louis City Workhouse, pending trial. The father to one son and stepfather to a daughter had a less than angelic past. His rap sheet included prior convictions for robbery. While incarcerated, Williams connected with a fellow inmate, Henry Cole, a man who was related to Williams via marriage in his extended family. From April to June of 1999, the two spent time chatting and watching TV together. Yeah, they said that at at first they didn't really know they were related, but after they talked for a minute, it was somebody's nephew was married to somebody else's sister's niece. You know, it was like kind of tenuous, but you know, you might be end up at the same family reunions and you're like, eh, I know you, you know, we're kind of related. We can hang out together. So you spend time with your buddy watching TV and hanging out. It's any connection I imagine in prison is that is a outside connection is one that you like to hold on to give you a sense of normalcy. Right. On June 4th, 1999, the day he was released from the facility, Henry Cole went straight to police and told them that Williams had confessed to the Gale murder. Cole explained how the two men were watching TV when a news story about the murder came on, advertising the $10,000 reward. Cole claimed that Williams confessed to taking a bus to the victim's house and murdering her. Interested in collecting the reward money, Cole offered police a piece of paper that he claimed were notes he had taken of Williams's various confessions. Now, this is where I start to question some police behavior because on the one hand, it is now, um, you know, over a year after or almost over a year after the crime, people are breathing down your neck. What's how, ha- you know, what's the status of the case? And it seems like pennies from heaven, right? Some guy shows mm-hmm. up and says, Hey, by the way, I know who did this. I'll tell you what's up with that money though. Yeah. Well, how can I get that yeah. money though? And Henry Cole was not, he'd been convicted 12 times on various crimes. His, he was kind of a career criminal. It's paying 30 years, robbery, stealing from homes, weapons, offenses, state, federal, multiple States. He unfortunately had a long history of mental illness And he had substance use issues and he made it very clear the second that television showed that it was a $10,000 reward, he was real interested in that money and he wanted all of it. He wanted all $10,000. Going straight from being released from prison to the police station, I think is also rather telling that, you know, I mean, you, you get out, you have nothing, you're in need of money pretty quick. Yeah, real fast way to do that. Although he tells them immediately, well, you know, at the time of the crime, he had this girlfriend he'd been seeing for about two months, maybe talk to her. And that was pretty much it. Aside from this kind of 
made up long confession in these notes. He, you know, he said, oh, I even have this piece of paper where I wrote my notes on it. Really? You're sitting yeah. in your cell writing confession notes? You had that foresight? I'm Call me skeptical, but I'm a little skeptical. I agree. Sinisterhood will be right back. On Colt's tip, police began investigating Marcellus Williams. On November 17, 1999, they questioned Williams' ex-girlfriend, Laura Asaro. With multiple prior arrests of her own and outstanding warrants, Asara believed police were there to arrest her. Instead, they offered to help her with her warrants if she would provide them information about her ex. Another telling thing. Okay, I mean, I feel like this is a double-edged sword most times because it could go either way. I think the incentive for someone to give up information on someone, that is their ex especially, Yes. When it is going to benefit you greatly, it's even if you if you have if you have stuff, you're like, oh, finally, good. I get to talk about this and it's going to help. If you don't, though, and that carrot is dangling in front of you, how easy is it to make something up because you are also in a situation that you're trying to get out of? Very quickly. And especially if you're told, hey, you know, uh, Henry Cole already told us he did it. We just, you know, you were with him at the time. We just need you to corroborate it. We already know. We just, and you know what? You got a lot of warrants, but we can mm-hmm. make those go away real easy, real easy if you just help us out. Mm-hmm. And she, I mean, it's extremely telling that the, the second they showed up, they're like, oh, she's like, oh, you're here to get me. I get it. Here, take me in. Yeah. yeah. And then you go from, oh, I'm not about to go to jail to, oh, I can just tell you I was there and I get to stay at my house. Well, that's a pretty easy decision. Yes. And she had flipped on people before she had, uh, she was a sex worker. So she had been picked up for various crimes here and there and was willing to become an informant for the police and had a a significant crack cocaine addiction and was also very interested in the reward money she mentioned as well. Asaro complied. She had previously testified against others, including Williams, for reduced charges relating to her sex work and crack cocaine addiction. Asaro told police that Williams confessed to her about committing the crime. According to Asaro, Williams had driven to the victim's house during the day. Later that evening, after the murder, Asaro claimed Williams had scratch marks on his neck. When Asaro asked him about it, she claimed Williams threatened to kill her and her family members if she ever turned him in. So step one for the police, you're like, okay, well, Henry Cole said he took a bus and you're saying he drove a car. Yeah. So there's a red flag right away. These are two potentially not the most credible witnesses that we have. And there's an immediate discrepancy at the beginning of the story. Definitely. So right there, I think it's a red flag. Like maybe we should pause and look into this a bit more on both sides. They really didn't look much into it, especially given the car was not functional at the time of the murder. She was living in it. It was stationary, kind of broken down. And maybe operable sometimes, but certainly would have been noticeable, especially parked outside of a gated community in a really fancy area. I Mm -hmm. imagine an old Buick LeSabre barely running with a trunk that doesn't quite lock would be noticed. But again, it was just, thank you, Mrs. Saro. You've been very helpful today. What else can you tell us? Oh, well, he had these scratch marks on his neck. Well, Leisha Gell's fingernails had blood and skin under them. It seems fairly easy to compare the two. Mm Mm-hmm. Asaro told police about a laptop that Williams traded to a man down the street named Glenn Roberts for crack cocaine around the time of the murder. When police interviewed Roberts, 
he admitted to accepting the computer as collateral in exchange for lending money to Williams. Roberts recalled the exchange, specifically how Williams mentioned that he had gotten the laptop from his girlfriend. A serial number matched the laptop to Leisha Gale's husband. And Glenn Roberts was best friends with Marcellus Williams' uncle and lived up the street. So when Laura Osaro tells Marcellus Williams, hey, I need some money, where can we, what can we do with this laptop? And he says, oh, I know Glenn's up the street. He'll give us a little bit of money if he hangs on to it. What, who's, you got this laptop? Yeah, I'll take it over there. Yeah. And then suddenly she tells the cops, well, there was a laptop. Ball. Where did she get the laptop? Great question. Nobody really looked into that. We don't know. Marcellus didn't ask questions either. No. I think, you know, the lifestyle that they were leading, those questions weren't asked. It was very like survival mode 24-7. That's what it seems like. Yeah, it's like, all right, we need money. What do we have we can trade for it? Mm-hmm. Asaro told police she had seen the victim's ID card in the trunk of Williams's car. However, the ID was later found inside the victim's home. Nevertheless, police believed Asaro and searched the Buick LeSabre. Inside the glove box, they found a St. Louis Post-Dispatch ruler and calculator, both belonging to Gail. There was no purse or ID card. Later witnesses told police that Williams's car was inoperable when Gail was killed. Asaro also had access to his keys while he was incarcerated. Regardless, Asaro agreed to testify in exchange for the dismissal of outstanding warrants against her and a share of the reward money. And that's the wild thing is the police, you know, if she says, oh, I saw her ID card in the car and it's like, bingo, we've got it. And you get there and there's nothing. The ID was found in the house later. She just lied to you. She lied to you and said that she found the ID in the card and she didn't. So why would you just go, well, maybe if she was confused. No, she. this woman lied to your face, police officers. Look into the what else she's lying about. I wonder if they don't find that, but they find the other things. So they're like, oh, well, you know, we found some evidence in here that belongs to her. Maybe she just got confused. Or they were like, well, we found something. So we're not even going to really question that because we're trying to get a somebody arrested. The other argument is these two items, this calculator and this ruler were in the glove box, but there were zero fingerprints on them whatsoever. And they Mm. were very prominently in the glove box almost a year afterwards in an inoperable car that Laura Asaro was living in. And it was just sitting on top in the glove box where she lives. This is again, it's like, I'm not shade to her for living in the car, but I would imagine you have to utilize all areas of space. Mm -hmm. And the glove box now is there just happens to be this evidence in there. Wiped clean of fingerprints, which is is very suspicious. On January 6, 2000, Marcellus Williams was indicted for the murder of Leisha Gale. The defense requested testing of the bloody fingerprints found at the scene, but prosecutors said that was impossible because the police had lost the evidence. Before trial, Williams's counsel requested additional discovery and a con- and a continuance to conduct further forensic testing. All motions were denied. So the trial hasn't even started yet, and the cops are like, well, there's no fingerprints on the ruler or the calculator because he wore gloves. Well, there's bloody fingerprints in the house. Those have been lost. Okay. How? How? There was an oopsie, Christy. There's oopsies all the time. Well, when someone's life is on the line, maybe we have a little less oopsies. Zero days since our last oopsie at the St. Louis PD department. Losing fucking critical evidence in a murder trial and then accepting two, is what they call in the industry, incentivized witnesses, jailhouse snitches, snitch witnesses. 
whose stories don't even match. And then when you do have forensic evidence, it disappears. That's strange. It's wild. And it's it seems so blatant. Yes. And also to say, okay, well, we actually just need a little bit of time because uh, your witness says that he had scratch marks on his neck. The victim had some DNA under her fingernails. Maybe we can do some testing. No time. There's no time. Well, when someone is going to be executed, there's fucking time. Grant mm-hmm. the continuance. You, I'm this. Everything uh, start to finish, we can kind of see this is all issues in the judicial system. Yeah, yeah. Fast tracking something. Well, it's it's just in the interest of justice. No, it isn't. It's a clown show. And it's not because you're he's going to sit on death row for years and years and years. So he's got nothing but time. So you can take a little bit of time to see if this is even factual or if people are just making shit up to cover their own asses. And I imagine if they said, Oh, Hey, Marcellus Williams, by the way, in the interim, he had been convicted of that burglary or the burglary of the robbery at the Burger King. It was a, you know, armed stick up job, the usual, he got 20 years. So he wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Like he yeah. wasn't, he, he couldn't, he wasn't a flight risk. He's not going to leave. He's not going to disappear. They had him literally already in jail. They could have just waited six months to test and they did not. No. The trial began in June of 2001. Prosecutors have been criticized for apparent racial bias in their jury selection process, a vital issue when prosecuting a black male defendant for killing a white female victim. The prosecution struck six of seven qualified black candidates from the panel. One black juror was struck because he was a postal worker, a practice known as the, quote, postman gambit. Prosecutors have argued that postal workers tend to be disgruntled and lack ambition and cite that as the reason why they don't want them on juries. Defense attorneys alleged Defense attorneys allege the act of striking all postal workers from the jury panel is a long-standing technique in St. Louis County, where a disproportionate number of postal workers are African-American. With 11 white jurors and just one black juror, the trial began. And St. Louis County has been called out in uh, publications. We'll link a Mother Jones article in the, which some of this information came from in the show notes because, and this was cited by the Innocence Project in their filings, when you You want a cross-section of the community. You want a jury of your peers, and you don't want the state cherry-picking people who you think will be particularly sympathetic. That's not their job is to get a conviction at all costs. Their job is to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the elements of a crime. And so going in and going, just cut all the postal workers. We know what they look like, which Mm -hmm. has been documented as to have the ACLU called them out. I mean, it's a well-known thing. And that's exactly what happened here. I had never heard of that. And that's, it's disgusting to, and, and such a sinister loophole to get around essentially, you know, I, I mean, obvious racism, but you, you put it under this guise of, well, Postal workers are just real disgruntled, so they probably won't be able to give, you know, unbiased opinions. That's ridiculous. Some uh, our postal workers are delight. Always seems like they're in a good mood. Also black. So you know, I mean, they're. It's just a ridiculous thing to. It's so. This is a silly type of thing that's even going on and has been going on for so long. Does this happen in Texas? Oh, certainly, horribly. Yeah, a lot. I mean, specifically the postman gambit. I'm sure there's probably an equivalent. It might, and and it would be. Uh, Dallas is really a progressive kind of a bubble in the middle of uh, a red, otherwise red state. But in the state of Texas, it certainly happens, and that's why you have 
you know, the longstanding jurisprudence of like the Batson case, which you have to articulate a race-based reason why, and it doesn't have to be particularly awesome of a reason. It just has to kind of sort of fly. And as long as they have a quote unquote race neutral reason for striking someone, you can. Uh, What the problem is and what like the ACLU calls out situations like this is where technically, if you just said, I'm calling them out because of their postal workers, you know, it's well known that they are more, uh, I don't know if disgruntled is the right word, but you know, whatever, lack of ambition, disgruntled. I don't know why that would affect their service on a jury, but whatever. But where you have this, where it's seemingly race neutral, but really, you know, the real reason behind it, that's where it's important for watchdog groups, whether it's local or a larger group like the ACLU to go in and look at people's, uh, look at where those ra- facially neutral things like being a postman really correlates to a strong racial correlation. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, while it, you're just saying sort of, yes, it's just all post postal workers. Well, if 85% of, of postal workers are African-American, then suddenly that becomes a non-race neutral anymore. Yeah, very much so. Asaro and Cole both testified. Cole admitted on the stand that he would not have come forward if not for the reward money. Glenn Roberts testified about his receipt of the stolen laptop. Roberts would have also testified to Williams's comment about the computer belonging to his girlfriend, but the trial judge would not let the jury hear that information, ruling it was hearsay. And here's where the issue comes in, too, is that the judge basically said, oh, if, Mar- if the defendant wants that information in, he needs to come and testify. Well, you have a Fifth Amendment right to not testify. You you don't have to take the stand on your own as a defendant. So what you have just created is an impasse where Mm -hmm. you've told the defendant you have to, I'm either going to violate your constitutional rights on this or violate it on this. And he chose to leave this key piece of information out because now it really does just sound like Marcellus Williams had the victim's laptop on his own, on his own accord. And yeah, the Colin Asaro stories being all sideways the public defender did his best he said i had a capital case start uh, the month before this so you have two death penalty cases that you have to try trials that you're in charge of back to back each month that's an insane caseload that is undoable and he just said i couldn't in in later uh Court filings just kind of said, I couldn't do it. I could not do the due diligence that I wanted. I asked for continuances and I was denied because there was a ton of impeachment evidence on Cole and Asaro. All their stories were bullshit. And he, he didn't even have time to know that, much less cross-examine them. So you just kind of go, well, that's what they said. Uh, I don't know if you believe them or not. Let's turn to the, that's the only evidence. Let's turn to the hard forensic evidence. And that's where you try to hang your hat on something. And so many things you just mentioned are huge issues in the justice system. Overworked, caseloads yeah. that are unmanageable, but these attorneys are also appointed to you, so you don't really get a say in that. Mm-mm. And then, like you said, he's in prison already on another charge. Well, do you want to testify so you don't get to this? Well, then guess what? We're not going to let that in. So it's up to you, which really it's not. We're setting you up to fail. We've also set your attorney up to fail. But this is how it is. Right. And then on the flip side, it was discovered that all that impeachment evidence that the public defender would have been able to discover had he had time, he asked the prosecution for it and they said no. And then he asked the judge, can I have time to find it myself? And the judge said no. So tell me how it's not a stacked deck. Mm hmm. Like, it it just is a stacked deck. And a a ton of the pretrial discovery motions for more forensic evidence to get in, judge denied them. 
Sinisterhood will be right back. The state pointed to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch ruler and calculator found in Williams's car as proof of his guilt. The defense suggested that the items could have been planted. Mrs. Sorrow had the keys to the car, and witnesses saw her gain access to the Buick while Williams was incarcerated. Asaro was also seen in possession of a laptop bag similar to one stolen from the crime scene after the date that Marcellus was already incarcerated alongside Henry Cole. The defense mainly focused on the fact that none of the forensic evidence linked Williams to the crime. The bloody shoe print was not a match for Williamson's shoes or even his size. Both the head hairs and pubic hairs taken from the immediate crime scene were not a match to Leisha Gale, her husband, or Williams. The blood and skin recovered from beneath Gale's fingernails were also not a match to Williams, despite Asaro claiming he had scratch marks on his neck. So there's bloody footprints at the scene that indicate a single perpetrator, because there's only one set of the footprints. There's bloody fingerprints at the scene that have been lost and missed. So knowing that there's only one perpetrator, and knowing that the hair on the victim, the DNA under the fingernails, and the bloody shoe prints do not belong to the defendant. Why is this man even in the fucking courtroom at the table? Why is he even at the table? It might not be enough to convict someone, but it's enough to say someone else didn't do it. Correct. I mean, you can still say it. I don't, uh, this to me, it rules him out completely. I yeah, don't know who did I it. Agree. Maybe, yeah, we should look into it, but it wasn't Marcellus Williams' feet. It wasn't his DNA. It wasn't his hair. None of that. And for the victim's family, they deserve to know who did this. And oh, absolutely. So he's, you, you say, well, we know somebody's that empty chair over there. Somebody belongs there and we don't know who it is because we didn't do the due diligence. And meanwhile, the one other thing that was not tested for DNA at the time of the trial was the murder weapon, the knife and the knife handle, which the knife handle had foreign DNA on it. I don't even understand what is your reason that what what, re, what excuse could they possibly give for not testing that? Yeah, they I mean, they asked the the defense asked for a continuance and asked the court for forensic testing was denied, asked for everything they asked for. They were just denied. And the reasoning is, well, you don't want you to delay it. We can't delay justice. We can't just we just can't delay it. And it's like, you didn't even know who this fucking guy was until the random snitch ran up at the courthouse and ran up to the police and told you. And now all of a sudden, justice can't be delayed. I would also argue that uh, testing the some of the very few items that were there when this murder occurred is the epitome of finding justice. That's how mm -hmm. we find justice, especially with the science we have today. So to just be like, yeah, all this blood. Oh, that's weird. Anyways, that calculator and that ruler that were found in that car. Ding, ding, yes. ding. With no fingerprints on it. And mm -hmm. then when they said, well, why don't the, the calculator and the ruler don't have fingerprints on them? The state said, well, obviously he wore gloves. Oh, really? He wore gloves? And whose fingerprints were those? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we can't test them. They've been lost. The jury deliberated for five hours before convicting Williams of first-degree murder, first-degree robbery, and two counts of armed criminal action. On June 19, 2001, during the sentencing phase, the jury deliberated for less than 90 minutes, including lunch, and decided that Marcellus Williams should die by lethal injection. So the punishment phase of this, where 12 members of the public, 11 w white members of the public specifically chosen because they were white, it seems like, 
heard during the punishment phase a little bit about Marcellus Williams's family, his background, his children. Then they heard for 25 exhibits, multiple witnesses, photos, all the stuff about how while incarcerated, the day he was sentenced to 20 years in jail, Marcellus Williams would try to get out. He was part of an escape attempt. It involved him getting into a fight with a guard. Another prisoner hit one of the windows with a table, and they were all kind of in a big scuffle trying to get out. You know, I think it hurt the guard pretty bad. I think he got hit in the head with a like a metal rod. So there was a lot of blood. You know, your head bleeds a lot. So there's like an entire second trial about a completely unrelated incident, but that the, the in the closing argument of the death penalty phase, the state's attorney says, well, look at what he did in jail. I'll tell you why. Innocent men don't escape. That tells you right there he killed Leisha Gale. Innocent men don't try to escape in jail. They don't hit guards in the head. He had been indicted for murder. That's why he escaped. Never once did the state say in all of this presentation of escape evidence that he had been convicted of the unrelated robbery on that day and was told he was going to have to serve and sentenced to 20 years. So mm. he was like, fuck, I'm going to have to spend 20 years. And I, I got indicted on this murder thing a few weeks ago. Fuck it. I'm just going to escape on the day. Well, instead of saying that was the day he was sentenced to jail, the state just said a few weeks earlier, he had been indicted to this murder. Then all of a sudden he escapes. Doesn't that tell you that he absolutely did it? He said, that's consciousness of guilt and it's admissible for that reason. So they have this whole second mini trial during the death penalty phase that has literally nothing to do with the crime. It's only about his actions in jail regarding a separate incident. That's allowed in, but DNA testing is not. Something that I, I is, it's not hearsay because guards and stuff were there, but it has nothing to do with this. They're, they're excluding adjacent direct things related to the murder, yet something that happened, you know, that had nothing to do with anything, but they spin it so it is. But even then, it still shouldn't be admitted. Even if they do say, this is admissible because of this. No, it isn't. Right? It seems like on a gut level, it seems so stupid that you, not stupid, it seems unfair that you would allow in this extremely prejudicial information that has almost no probative value to the case that we just did. And that's the, the rule of evidence. If something is so overly prejudicial, it shouldn't be allowed in. In Missouri, they the courts allow evidence of other crimes to show certain things, you know, consciousness of guilt or, you know, a predilection towards it. But it has to be done in a narrowly tailored way so that what you're learning from that information doesn't poison the jury. It's almost, and it feels like, and on paper, I mean, I wasn't in the courtroom, but goddamn, I've read a lot. And it seems like it was for this prejudicial purpose. The, it's the way that the, the transcripts of the closing statement from the prosecutor read, it reads like a, he's got his hands in his pocket and he's just like, hey, I'm going to tell you about this monster, which that's your prerogative as a DA. I feel you, you're trying to do that. But knowingly bringing in a huge barrage of evidence merely to scare this jury into thinking he's this violent monster that's willing to tear his way out of the jail. And you must, there's just so many, frankly, racial undertones as well of like, he needs to be K like that way that in the 1990s up until or the early two thousands, black men were vilified as these extreme violent offenders. And there were, you know, news uh, commercials run on television. It's just a, like a, a monologue of that. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to say that innocent people try to escape from jail all the time. I imagine 
if I was in prison for something I didn't do, that would definitely be on my mind more so than if I maybe did do it. Right? I was like thinking that if it were me, if I saw an opening, I'd run for it. I mean, I might run for it. I would. Especially, I'd absolutely try to get out of there. Especially if you knew you didn't do it. Now, in his case, he was running because of the robbery and he knew he didn't. He just wanted to, didn't want to stay. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, you got to serve your time, man. But they had nothing to do, mm-hmm. in my opinion, reading all this with her being uh, indicted for her murder. Williams initially appealed his sentence on several grounds regarding the admissibility of evidence and certain testimony, as well as inflammatory statements during closing arguments. The appellate court denied this appeal and upheld his conviction. Williams then attempted to file a different motion for post-conviction relief in 2003, claiming ineffective assistance of counsel. Williams claimed his attorney failed to test Laura Asaro's blood, hair, and fibers to connect her to the crime scene. In 2005, the Missouri Supreme Court denied this motion and again upheld his conviction. So you ask, what do you do if the trial court makes a bunch of shitty rulings? He's like, oh, well, you appeal it. Well, then the appellate court's like, I think they were fine. And then the Supreme Court's like, yeah, everybody's good. To me, it seems as if they don't want to take hair, blood, anything from anyone else that might Open the door to, oh, he didn't do this. Now we got to start over because they don't want that. They want the conviction and to say case closed, wash their hands of it and move on. We are extremely lucky living in Dallas County because we have a conviction integrity unit, which does not exist in every county. And wherever y'all, if you live in the United States and are listening, check your own county. And if you don't have one, maybe ask your elected officials why not, because it gives you a peace of mind as a citizen to know that they are not going to railroad somebody even unless they already have, in which case the integrity unit is supposed to bring that back. But it just shows that it's an office that is at least interested in what is true and what is provable and what is right. And I don't, uh, no shade to St. Louis. It's a lovely place. I, I love visiting there. But at every step of the way, it seemed that the state was not interested in the truth and was not interested in finding out what happened, but was only interested in not being proven wrong. Yep. And having to spend more time on this than they wanted to. It seems like everybody was just like, can we just, who cares? Just kill him. Mm-hmm. Why do we even care? I'm like, oh, it's a human life. I care. Well, he was just, he like robbed a Burger King. He's a human that didn't, you shouldn't kill him for a thing he didn't do because he's a human being. So that's also, how I the feel. the family of the victim, victims, Deserve for the right person that killed their loved one to be held accountable for it. And especially if that same person had anything to do with Deborah McLean's murder, both families deserve that. That's what I'm saying, both of them. And to know how much of an advocate for the disadvantaged Leisha Gale was, for her to, to think of her knowing that, like, a wrongfully convicted person that didn't do this is on death row because of my murder. That would be destroy. That would destroy someone that has spent their whole life like advocating for people just like this, and now, ironically, this is happening in her yeah, case. And, yeah, being used to. Yeah, exactly. Williams's attorneys then sought federal relief. In 2006, they requested that police conduct further DNA testing on the physical evidence at the crime scene and compare it to Asaro, as well as known felons in both Missouri's and the FBI's databases. The court denied the motion, holding there was 
No good cause. For this testing, and reasoning that at trial, it was already established that the DNA did not match Williams, the victim, or the victim's husband. However, the court neglected to address the fact that attorneys were asking to compare the crime scene samples to Laura Asara's DNA. That appeal was denied all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Williams was then given an execution date, January 28, 2015. It seems completely mind-boggling to be like, could you just check and see if maybe somebody else did this? And to have all the courts go, we don't know. Stop it. Stop asking. We don't want to do that. You're like, you could just like run it through a database or something. We already we already checked to see if it was the victim or her husband and it wasn't. It's like, I wasn't asking for that. I was asking yeah. for the person that had the laptop and the car and wait, what? It's, it's insane. We're aware that it didn't match any of those people. That is, in fact, why we are asking for it to be retested. Yeah. But it's as if you're just beating your head against a wall. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm not even asking for that to be tested again. This is to be tested against a new possible perpetrator. Uh, no. Nope, we're not. No, Sorry. No. When we were researching this, we were both like, why is the court talking about this other? We were like, what is this talking? This The opinion doesn't even make any sense. Mm -mm. But- and we'll get into it. And so what do we think? It's just this kind of stuff where you see a failure at every step. It's bad enough if a trial judge sucks. It's bad enough if a state appellate system sucks all the way to the top. And by as a person who lives in a state who has that, it really sucks all the way to the top. I feel you. But then to also see the federal judiciary fail at such a level, it's just, well, what do we have to do? We got to take it out of their hands. I don't know. But to just say, well, kill them anyway. Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. With his execution impending, Williams had one more chance. New evidence was discovered. Male DNA was found on the handle of the murder weapon, but had never been tested. His attorneys filed a petition requesting that a special master be appointed to oversee DNA testing of new evidence. Williams's lawyers asked for the DNA to be tested and compared to any possible DNA on the weapon used in the unsolved Deborah McLean case. The court stayed his execution and appointed a special master, but did not authorize the master to conduct an evidentiary hearing after DNA tests were completed or to consider the McLean murder evidence. So it's kind of a little window gets open, but ideally the window would have been opened a lot more so you at least don't, aren't going to be executed. Somebody is at least looking at it and will allow this testing. But this is the type of evidence that gets your case accepted by the Innocence Project. They want cases of actual innocence, not I did it, but here's some mitigating factors. Like I wasn't even there. Actual innocence. And here is a piece of evidence that was not even looked at at trial. And it is an unidentified male contributor from a knife that was washed and put away in her kitchen drawer it was not her DNA or some of her DNA was on there, but excluded, but it was not the husband like that needs to be tested. Yeah, I, I, it's, I don't even know why when things like this get introduced, it's it could it somebody's allowed to say no. I feel like when something like this is introduced, it's an automatic like, OK, well, then we got to do this. Like it shouldn't even be left up to another person to decide if this can be done or not. It's, it boggles the mind to say, like, you're telling me we could definitively test this with science. It's not even anybody's gut feeling or opinion or a jury of your peers. And that you would prefer 
to not do that. And surprisingly, we have had all the way up to our United States Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas going, yeah, I'd rather do that. I'd rather him die. It's faster. Takes it less is, time. It's it less is bothersome. mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, to you, perhaps, Clarence Thomas, you piece of shit. But to Marcellus Williams's kids and family and friends and himself, his life is very valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. His son every day is uh, very outspoken and talks about, I, my dad did not do this. And the articles from right around this time where this evidence is discovered, it's like, oh my gosh, finally, our prayers have been answered. And you think it's going to get tested. Let's see what the results are. The test results were clear. The male DNA present on the knife that killed Leisha Gale was not a match to Marcellus Williams. The sample was not complete enough for a full suspect profile, but there were sufficient loci present to rule Williams out definitively, according to three independent forensic experts. One of those experts, biologist Greg Hampikian, told CNN that the DNA on the knife isn't enough to incriminate someone, but it is enough to exclude somebody. It's like finding a social security card with some blurred numbers. There's still enough that you can at least exclude someone. That's a very interesting and helpful way to look at something like this. He's a professor at Boise State University, or at least was at this time. So it's very professorly to be like, let me find a plain language way to explain this. Mm -hmm. But given that information, like you said, it's easy peasy when we have that information. Okay, let him out. Yeah. I, I, have don't, a hearing. I don't understand how in any of these cases, when certain things pop up, that it's not an immediate shut it down. We got to put everything on pause till we address this and that it, people can still just like keep going through the system as they were before such an integral key piece of evidence is discovered. Yeah. it's And especially you think again, at every turn, oh my gosh, this our prayers are answered. We've gotten DNA we haven't found yet. Oh my gosh, our prayers are answered. The test was that it was definitely not him. Surely next we'll get to go up in front of a judge and tell them about it. The results were provided to all attorneys on the case, who then filed post-testing briefs to the court, offering sworn statements from two lab technicians regarding the results. The court did not call for a hearing to allow the attorneys to present the evidence and arguments. Instead, without warning, on January 31, 2017, the Missouri Supreme Court issued a one-page order. Marcellus Williams's pending petition was denied without explanation. After being provided DNA evidence excluding him as the perpetrator, the Missouri Supreme Court then set a new execution date for Williams, August 22, 2017. Further federal appeals were denied. And this is where your jaw is on the floor. You appoint, They take the time to appoint a special master to oversee this. He gets the information, and then the court says, yeah, we don't care, though. It's fine. It's maddening. I mean, I don't know how you get up every day knowing that this is going on, and you're like, what is? what even hope or chance do I have? Like, everything that we're trying to do is just... Nobody cares but us. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure being a full-time employee of the Innocence Project or even a uh, pro bono volunteer on one of these long-term cases, you feel like you're walking along the beach and just huge waves crash over you mm -hmm. every time. Not in a happy walk along the beach, in like a hurricane. Because it's just, okay, well, we think we're making some progress and we're sucked down again. Mm -hmm. We think we're making some progress and we're hit again. Something like this, I mean, and it should also make much, much bigger headlines. It's shocking to me yes. 
that you have a, and it did at the time, it, to be fair, at the time in August of t- around summer of 2017, it started to gain traction, but it was much like we saw with Julius Jones, just as the clock is ticking down. So it takes mm-hmm. a real life date on the books and really getting down to the wire for people to start kind of making a lot of noise about it. With months before Williams's execution, his attorneys petitioned the governor of Missouri, Eric Greitens, to stop the execution and convene a board of inquiry. The attorneys relied on a rare 1963 Missouri law that allows the governor to impanel a board of inquiry to review evidence of innocence in a death penalty case. The law had only been utilized three times by Missouri governors since it was passed almost 60 years prior. With just four hours to go, the governor postponed Williams's execution and agreed to convene a board. I mean, it just shows how rare it is that this is even used, but in what an extreme case this is where someone is being strapped down to the gurney and mm-hmm. there is, we see this evidence in not just the knife handle, which is new, but all of this other stuff that has never been considered by an actual jury. It's just not justice. It's just not. And like you said, I don't understand how it's gotten to this late in the game. Why mm-hmm. is it four hours before he's supposed to be executed? And finally a judge is like, all right, you know what I mean? Like it, there was, you're not seeing anything in those four, four hours that you hadn't seen for months and months leading up to this. So you could have made this decision much earlier. We'd all get a lot further and you've saved the mental anguish that Williams has now experienced of being like, well, I got four hours left. All right. never mind. You know, I yeah, just kidding. Come on. You almost think they do it as a form of punishment in and of itself, like a mind game with people. I would hope not. I I like to think for as terrible as any politician is that nobody would really want to torture somebody, but I'm probably wrong and too optimistic. This case, trying to get the governor's attention is it's just hard. I mean, I'm sure it, it takes a, a large outcry, a ton of uh, stories going viral, as loud of a mouthpiece as the Innocence Project can be. It doesn't always reach everywhere all the time. And so I think having somebody getting a bug in the ear of the governor in some cases is the only way to stop it. But we should not rely on one person as justice. Like, oh, well, we Mm -hmm. hope that the governor hears about it. And if not, whoops. It's like there's so many people have touched the case before that, that in their gut and I hope on their conscience, they know what they did or they didn't care enough and maybe in hindsight care about what they did. But it's like so important for every piece to be considered along the way, not just go, I don't really care. Just pass it yeah. along. Not my problem. Governor Greitens specifically instructed that the board investigate Williams's claim regarding the knife handle DNA evidence. Greitens said in a statement at the time, A sentence of death is the ultimate permanent punishment. To carry out the death penalty, the people of Missouri must have confidence in the judgment of guilt. In light of new information, I am appointing a board of inquiry in this case. And it's to me, it's so low stakes for the state and it's so high stakes for Marcellus Williams because mm-hmm. if they don't appoint the board of inquiry, Marcellus Williams dies. Mm-hmm. When they do appoint the board, Governor Greitens isn't saying you're innocent, you can leave tomorrow. The board has to choose between fully exonerating him, overturning his conviction and saying he needs another trial where all of this stuff is fairly considered, commuting the death sentence to life without parole, or rescheduling him a sentence to a later date and saying, no, we agree with this evidence. So, okay, well, that's just another check and balance 
that's been put into place, it's not like the state immediately is just letting him free. Right. He's not walking out of there if somebody says, never mind, he, we're going to stay this. Yeah. The board began its investigation and Williams's attorneys cooperated, providing supplemental materials when asked. On May 29, 2018, Governor Greitens resigned amid scandals involving campaign finances and personal scandal. He was replaced by Lieutenant Governor Michael L. Parson. The investigation seemed to continue. As recent as 2020, the board asked Williams's team for additional information. Williams's attorneys replied, but the prosecutors never submitted a response. Between 2020 and 2023, Williams's attorneys stood ready to provide follow-up information, but did not receive further requests as their client remained in limbo. So if that's the case and you're not being asked for information, can you not provide it on your own? Um, you might be able to, but usually you make thorough briefs, you know, whatever they're going to ask for is going to have exhibits and a ton of stuff. Plus the board of inquiry, I would imagine has all the access to trial information and, you know, it's five retired judges, uh, it, you know, it's, or I've retired, but five judges in various states of their career or whatever. But it, it's not like that the board of inquiry would need to really go dark for like long stretches. But to be fair, that's like COVID. So it might not have been Mm. the top of everyone's mind. So at least from his attorney's perspective, from Marcellus Williams' attorney, I'd say kind of no news is good news. You know, we haven't heard anything. So maybe we'll, they'll ask us for info or we'll get some good news. And again, I'm just too optimistic. Then on June 29th, 2023, Governor Mike Parson issued an executive order dissolving the Board of Inquiry without it ever having published a report or recommendation. Worse still, he lifted Williams's stay of execution. Governor Parson said at the time, This board was established nearly six years ago, and it's time to move forward. We could stall and delay for another six years, deferring justice, leaving a victim's family in limbo, and solving nothing. This administration won't do that. Withdrawing the order allows the process to proceed within the judicial system. Once the due process of law has been exhausted, everyone will receive certainty. Everyone? Well, it's fucking... (laughs) Everyone? It's just disingenuous because he's already exhausted it. That's what this is, is that the due process has failed him, and that's what this is. Mm -hmm. So nobody will get justice because her family won't get justice. He won't get justice. The citizens of Missouri who fucking elected you to do your job don't get justice. We're all getting screwed because you want to speed things up. You're kind of bored. I don't like that. I don't like this guy. However, his executive order did not outline any due process. Instead, it fast-tracked Williams's death, specifically saying, With this executive order, I remove any legal impediments to the lawful execution of Marcellus Williams, including the order staying the execution. The next day, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey asked the state Supreme Court to set an execution date. So, just real quick, sending them without even letting the board do its job. And I also would say... This board was established six years ago. Yeah, it was. It's fucking crazy and wild that they didn't do anything during that six years, isn't it? Isn't that so ridiculous? Why don't you ask them what the fuck they're doing? Right? Instead of going, well, they're probably good. No, they would tell you, I think. if My question is, who did you talk to? And Governor Parson, did you talk to a member of the Board of Inquiry? And they were like, yeah, man, it looks like this guy didn't do it. We're probably going to have to... uh, 
give him another trial. And he was like, no, 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 we'll get him first. We'll kill him first. Yeah. I don't know. Did he do that? Why? Why all of a sudden is it super, super quick to do that? There has been no, by the way, zero evidence that that happened. But what would out of nowhere cause this governor to just fast track this man's execution in the show me state? Nevertheless, Missouri is called the show me state. Dude, they're trying to show you some DNA evidence and you're not trying to look. You're not trying to look. The only thing I can think of is he was trying to make a big move in the early days of his new role to try and kind of, you know, establish himself as some kind of alpha male type of governor, like no nonsense. But he sounds like an idiot and someone who is less concerned with getting it right and more concerned with just getting papers off his desk. Yeah, and like the optics, too, of like, I gave justice to a family. Mm-hmm. No, you fucking didn't. No, you yeah. didn't. Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. The Innocence Project called it. An unprecedented move. When the governor ordered a man's execution after terminating the board of five former judges appointed by the previous governor with no inquiry concluded. On August 24th, 2023, Williams and his team filed a civil lawsuit against Governor Parson, asking the court to invalidate the executive order, dissolving the board, and lifting the stay of execution. The case hinges on whether the governor violated Williams's due process rights and exceeded the authority of the governor's office with his action. The suit also seeks to prohibit the state from obtaining an execution warrant unless and until the board is permitted to satisfy its obligation to produce a report and recommendation to the governor on the outstanding evidence. The suit is pending. I mean, yeah, you have to just go in and sue and ask for what you ask for what you want, which is in this case, say, could they just be allowed to finish their job and tell us what they think about this evidence? That's literally all we're asking. Could you please not murder him right before that? Are there any laws in place where if the previous governor does instill something like this, that the one that comes in next isn't allowed to just do away with it? No, and that's what the issue is that this is such a rare law, that the 1963 law about the convening the Board of Inquiry, that it if unless the state agrees to stay the execution and reconvene the board, which is going to would cause Mike Parson great embarrassment because he's now, you know, it's, it gets to a point where someone gets dug in. But I don't think there's a law in the books that says if the previous person did this, you can't change it immediately with regards to this specific law, just given it's, it's only been used like three times. Mm-hmm. In general, it just kind of depends on what their prior order was or what the most of the time governors just sign laws rather than or sign executive orders. So it's what you've seen, the overuse of executive orders in the president's uh, role, as well as in governor's roles, where they just roll in and make an executive order going, yeah, 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 the last guy did it. I don't know. Delete it. I don't want that. And you see how loose it is. Mm -hmm. Maybe there should be. Among what seems to be endless legal questions about the validity of Williams's conviction, there remains one question. Who killed Leisha Gale? Until the state of Missouri conducts the DNA testing on the weapons from both her murder and the still unsolved murder of Deborah McLean that occurred weeks earlier, we may never know for sure. Any and all police records, crime laboratory testing, and other reports generated in the McLean case are closed records under Missouri's Sunshine Law. There have been no public announcements of DNA testing in Leisha's case. No, in McLean's case. Oh, 
there have been no public announcements of DNA testing in McLean's case. And that's kind of the rock and a hard place you would find yourself in as William's attorney going, this could be connected to this other case. Hey, can we test that DNA in the state going, no, you can't have it. You're like, oh, well, that might be the thing that gets my client free. And they're like, well, that's too bad. And you're like, it could also maybe help you solve that murder. And they're like, well, you, you can't have it. What a world it would be if everybody worked together instead of against each other in these situations. Yeah. And taking that ego out of it. Well, I don't want to be proved wrong. We're going to look like fucking idiots that got proved wrong. It's what is true. We are here to prove the truth. This, there is no interest in truth here whatsoever, except for the post-conviction counsel who've tried their damnedest. But yeah, what a world to say, oh yeah, we'll help you out. That might actually help us out. Mm Mm-hmm. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, incentivized witness testimony has contributed to 14% of death penalty cases that later led to a DNA exoneration. Mr. Williams has spent 24 years of his life on death row. His lawsuit against the Missouri governor is currently pending. October 2, 2023 is the 10th annual International Wrongful Conviction Day day to raise awareness of the causes and remedies of wrongful convictions and to recognize the tremendous personal, social, and emotional cost of wrongful conviction for innocent people and their families. To learn more and to get involved, visit wrongfulconvictionday.org. So what do we think? This case just start to finish is like a perfect picture of a lot of pain points in the justice system from the very beginning to incentivize witness testimony right after that to ignoring the dire need for forensic testing in cases to a poor overworked public defender who has two capital cases back to back and asks the judge for a continuance and you have a merciless judge who denies the continuance. So, I mean, it's just step by step by step all the way up until when you have a governor on in office who could right wrongs. No, I'm talk- not talking about Greitens. He did what he could. He did the right thing, which was to go, man, we're not sure. All right. Well, somebody's got to look into it. And then now you to have Governor Parson come in and just go, well, I could stop this, but I won't. I'll kill him faster. Mm-hmm. That is, it, it boggles the mind. And it's just beyond. And I think that is, this is an extreme case of exactly what International Wrongful Conviction Day is meant to bring awareness to of you watch a person who he was going to, again, Marcellus Williams wasn't going to get out. He was convicted on robbery anyway, but that doesn't mean, A, we should execute him and B, we should leave these victims' families without an answer with for Leisha Gale and for Deborah McLean. They're all of this huge mess. And like you said, legal questions and uh, the headlines about the governor doing all this wrong. At the end of it, there are still these families that deserve definitive answers. There's such a cloud around Leisha Gale's uh, murder case and all the evidence and the lack of testing that that family hasn't received true justice. And there's not even any comparison to it, the Deborah McLean case mm-hmm. with this DNA evidence. So again, it's just these families. That's what's leaving the families in limbo. Mike Parsons is trying to, or Parson is trying to say, oh, well, this board of inquiry is taking so long. Well, like two and a half, three of those is a hugely detrimental worldwide pandemic. So give them a little bit of slack. They were mm-hmm. working from home, I'm sure. But to tell these families, oh, well, this fast track will just take care of it and everybody can shut up about it is completely disingenuous and disgusting and misleading, frankly, to the people of Missouri. And if you live in Missouri, I'd be real fucking pissed to have a shithead like that in office. I know I live in Texas. <laughs> He's worse. We got our own shithead in office. No, truly. It does boggle the mind. And 
in any case like this, it always makes me think, how many more are there like this that we don't even know about? This is just one that made headlines because I think the media likes a countdown on a clock. And, yeah. you know, that's when things start moving and things get in the, the news and make headlines. And maybe you get the governor's ear at that point. It shouldn't have to take that long. And I think I've said before, and I'll say it again, and I don't know how because I'm not a lawmaker yet. But, <laughs> but you're a judge, so. <laughs> there needs to be some type of law, laws, where when specific criteria is met after a conviction, if something is discovered, or perhaps even during a case, that it's you, you already have a rule established. So it's not even a question of, do we, don't we let this in? It's like, this checks the boxes for something we've all already said we agree upon. So we're letting this in. Or yeah, you automatically have to test this DNA. It's not even a question. We can now test it. So we are going to. Yes. And here is funds set aside specifically to test that. It doesn't hinge on, do you have enough money to be able to hire private laboratories to test this? No, I think you're right. And I think that that is get the answer is that either uh, ideally at the federal level or at the state by state level of saying, if there's actual evidence of actual innocence, the step is it's tested by this lab. It's reviewed by a panel of retired judges that are appointed on a three-year calendar road to, you know, just to keep it fair, whoever's in it. So it's not the same people seeing it because I think when we see cases like this, when we see cases like Gene Bibbins in Louisiana, who was ID'd by a victim I and had a part of the victim's evidence on him after the crime, but was exonerated from DNA. He just happened to look like the guy and he just happened to get the radio from somewhere. Robert Clark in Georgia, he was in a stolen car. Well, it turns out that woman had been raped. The victim said, oh yeah, that was him. He was exonerated by DNA. He just stole a car. He didn't. So where we're seeing these people that, yeah, he's got to go to, he's, he needs to go down for stealing a car, but there, there's a rapist out there we need mm -hmm. to catch. And on the, on a, the hugely damaging, absolutely depressing side of the scale uh, side of the spectrum is Shantae odd in wisconsin there were two eyewitnesses not just eyewitnesses that said oh he told me they said we were in the room we watched him commit this murder he was later exonerated on dna and that turned out to have been a serial killer who killed like seven women wow. so the problem is not just oh we have this one single human life at risk marcellus williams of being executed that is sad and, and horrible enough but the fact that the who else has been hurt and injured and killed by the real perpetrators in these wrongful conviction cases where the public is now actually actively in danger because of what Governor Parson did? Mm -hmm. Like you are choosing not to solve a crime and to get a murderer off the street. You're actually endangering your own citizens who elected you. And that's where I think you're right. There has to be some type of federal legislation realizing all of these separate pain points and saying, we can't go back in time and unfuck all of these convictions that have happened already, but we've established this criteria by which they can be vetted, evaluated. And I'm very proud of our city for having, for Dallas County to have that conviction integrity unit where they can look into past convictions and not fight tooth and nail, which you've seen here with the St. Louis County Prosecutor's Office, just going, fuck you, no, I'm not wrong. I'll prove it. I'll prove it. I'll prove it. And just take a fucking second to look at the evidence that is not a jail, an incentivized $5,000 reason to tell whatever story because each of them got five grand, you know, Laura, Saro, and Henry Cole, you know, listening to not these snitches, 
going with the evidence, provable evidence, and not just your own ego. That's that's what's got to happen. I agree. We will keep everyone yeah. updated on this case and any updates that are made in it. We usually do those updates on Patreon. Yes. If there, if it's something so big that it's a whole other episode, then we might yeah, we, do a part two of this at some point too. We'll keep an eye out, y'all. Everybody always asks how to help. My best guess is uh, writing to the governor, writing to the attorney general, writing to the uh, Supreme Court, writing to everybody that you can write to, writing to the news stations in your area in St. Louis, saying why aren't you covering this? This is completely outrageous. And also supporting the Innocence Project, following them online. So in case, if you don't live in Missouri, something like this may be happening near you. And it's not just a a United States problem, although it is largely a United States problem. But wherever you live, just keeping an eye on the judicial system around you and making sure they're not railroading folks. Absolutely. The Innocence Project, their website has loads of valuable information, especially about this particular case. And like we said, if you want to learn more and get involved visit wrongfulconvictionday.org. And I'm sure that there's a ton of links and helpful information on there as well. Absolutely. A big part of that is getting involved locally and that's where you can do it. There you go. Well, switching gears, but speaking of things that are still local, at least to us. Yes. On a lighter note, Heather, uh, October 20th through the 22nd, what are we going to be doing? Well, we will be in our hometown of Dallas, Texas at Obsessed Fest. If you're not aware, Obsessed Fest is a weekend that brings together podcasters with their listeners. True crime podcasts like True Crime Obsessed, I Think Not, uh, Robbie Ashadri will be there, Bob Ruff, Let's Go to Court, Generation Y, Red Handed, all of your favorite true crime podcasters and yours truly will be there having panels. There's live performances, and it's a weekend to uh, to connect and learn and have a little fun, kind of cut loose in the evenings. Maybe learn during the day and have fun, at, in the, especially at that drag brunch on Sunday. Oh, but I am very excited to meet all these fellow podcasters and listeners. I think it's yeah. just going to be like a very chill, yet also exciting. <laughs> like chill in the sense that everyone is going to be like cool to hang out with. But there's also like a lot of fun, exciting, high energy events that we get to yes. do too. Yeah. Yeah. We can't wait. We're, uh, we'll, as soon as there's more information on schedules, timings, whatever, we'll let you know. But for now, you just need to be there October 20th through the 22nd in Dallas, Texas. Get your tickets at obsessedfest.com. It's the Taylor Swift sing along. <laughs> you know, it would be loud as hell. You know, that. I'm doing all 10 minutes of All Too Well, just to <laughs> go ahead and let everybody know. Well, if you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to see what we're up to next or dive into over 500 hours of bonus content. What all have we posted recently, (laughs) Heather? So many good stuff. We're blowing up about this high school stuff. Oh, and also perhaps a blunder that I made on the definition of what gigam means. That's what I was going to say. Please don't come at me. If you went to AM, I apologize, but also I still am not 100% I'm wrong. So maybe I apologize. Maybe I don't. You're like, I apologize, but I stand by what I said. No, we had everybody send in the incident from their high school. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was like a flood, a crazy thing that you remember happening, whatever. Scandal. And then 
scandals. But then from there, we completely went off the rails and started talking about, yeah, you'll hear it. Anyway, uh, Gigam Aggies has taken on a completely different uh, meaning <laughs> for all of us, indeed. Oh, I have so many friends that went to A&M, and I know a lot of our <laughs> listeners did. And if there's one school that you don't want coming after you, Dude, it might the, be them. And absolutely. so please just, I heard this from someone. And that's all I know. I don't remember <laughs> who, but I heard it from somebody, and I still am not entirely sure it is false. What I think I the internet is lying. I stand by what I said. I said what I said. It's over with. It's there. <laughs> well, for recent patrons that have uh, stuck around after my blunder, thank you so much for supporting <laughs> the show, and make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. You can also head over to SinisterHood.com and click shop in the top banner to check out Sinisterhood merch. We have t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, and even clothes for your kiddos to get ready for cozy season and the upcoming holidays. We're going to be launching new stuff, so make sure you keep an eye on that. Most recently, we have a new crew neck sweatshirt with the little ghost on it that everybody loves. And we also have a hoodie if you want some little pockets in the front. We got water bottles, all kinds of stuff. So just head to SinisterHood.com and click shop in the top banner. While you're there, you can also review the show, follow us on socials, and check out the episode description for more fun, like topic-based playlists. And when we have live show tickets, we also put the links there. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. You can like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We are on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. We're also on Cameo. Cameo is where you can book us for custom video shoutouts. We say happy birthday, happy anniversary. You can have the judge uh, moderate a dispute between you and someone else. I ha- we got McGruff. Yeah. There's a new Lucifer head, oh, maybe. No. Oh, God. <laughs> go to cameo.com search sinisterhood and let us know what you would want us to say in your custom video shout out christy where are you at online i don't know because i've blacked out after thinking about your recent acquisition (laughs) your recent new uh to add to your personal oddities and curiosity shop (laughs) that is your home the (laughs) most recent addition is startling oh no No, don't Stop, it's normal. It's not. Oh, you're putting it off. What? What? I don't know. This is normal. Oh, wait. Don't take it off. I gotta take a picture. Hold on. What? <laughs> okay. Heather, if you're wondering why does Heather sound muffled, it's because she's wearing a giant horse's head on her own head, like a mas- school mascot's horse head. <laughs> That's blue with a very toothy smile. He's got a <laughs> yellow mohawk slash mullet. Well, soon and it's going to have. He's going to be turned into something special. I was going to say, he's going to get a little haircut soon. I think we're going to change his hair, but I uh, I just wanted to scare you with it. I know you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> what color are you going to make his hair? I don't like more blue. I want it to look like Lucifer. My cousin oh. found some like really nice felt. My whole family is in on this now. <laughs> Shout out to Leanne for the donation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, Leanne. <laughs> I'll see you in my nightmares. <laughs> well, well I up. am on the Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and on the TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? All over the internet at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy.
Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout-outs. Andrea Carr. Blaney. Bianca McDonald. Olivia Leister. F.J. Marsh. Becky. Wendy Van Dyke. Heather. Drew Johnson. And Robin Schwartz. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We really, really mean that. We love you so much. We hope we pronounce your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. <laughs>